16. Revelation 16, beginning at verse 12 this morning. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Please be seated. Oops. Well, having last time done a sort of overview, a quick overview of the chapter of Revelation 16, uh, this morning I want to take a bit closer look at the sixth bold judgment. The sixth bold judgment, in large part, seems to be preparatory preparatory in that it sort of prepares the way for the pouring out of the final bull judgment, the seventh bull judgment. In fact, some would suggest that the sixth bull doesn't really contain a, a plague at all itself, but rather prepares the way for that final plague, which is delivered, of course, with the pouring out of the seventh bull and bringing then to an end all of history. Thank you. And ushering in the, f- the final kingdom and the eternal reign of our God, and of course the final judgment. The sixth bowl, it could be said, I think, is preparatory in its nature. And as well, it could be said that the sixth bowl is preparatory in a couple of different ways. First, It is with the pouring out of the sixth bowl that the stage is indeed set for the final battle at Armageddon. Again, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. But as well, we should recognize that this bowl is preparatory in that with the pouring out of this bowl comes a warning, a warning from the very lips of our Lord and Savior, a warning of his imminent return, exhorting then his church, you and I, to stay awake. The revelation of this bold judgment is meant in this way to prepare you and I, uh, brothers and sisters, to be ready, to stay awake, to stay awake for Armageddon. Awake for Armageddon. And so that then will make up our outline for this morning, basically the twofold preparatory nature of this sixth bold judgment, first setting the stage for the final battle, Armageddon, and, it's, and secondly, preparing the church for that final battle and 
frankly, for every lesser battle in the meantime. So first, chapter 12, once again, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. God often dries up water in scripture. The Exodus, of course, comes to mind where the Israelites walked through the Red Sea upon dry ground, being delivered from their bondage through the sea and into their wilderness journey. And as well, the Jordan comes to mind, which stood on the other side of the wilderness and through which God's people were again delivered, this time unto the promised land, walking through the Jordan upon dry ground, being delivered from their wilderness wandering to become a nation. God often miraculously dries up water that his people might be delivered through those waters walking upon dry ground. And here again, with the pouring out of the sixth bowl, God dries up water, namely the water of the great Euphrates River. However, God's purpose in drying up the The Euphrates here is apparently not in order that his people can walk through those waters on dry ground, but rather so that the enemies of his people can walk through on dry ground. In other words, in drying up the Euphrates, God is not removing an obstacle that stands in the way of his people so that he might deliver his people through it, but rather God is removing an obstacle that stands in the way of the enemies of his people. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. To prepare the way. This is the same language that is used of John the Baptist, the forerunner to Messiah, in his preparing the way for Jesus. God is here drying up the Euphrates to make straight, to make easy the way of the kings of the east, which become in this passage the kings of the whole earth, now assembled together in order to go to battle against the Lord's anointed and his followers at Armageddon. And it brings to mind the reoccurring theme of the Old Testament of the kings of the earth gathering together, joining forces to go to battle against the Lord as found in Psalm 2, for example. Psalm 2 and verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And as well, it's in the words of the Old Testament prophets, many of which seem to be pointing to a great and final battle where all the nations of the earth are united in opposition to the people of God and actually driven forward by God. Ezekiel 38, for example, a prophecy against Gog of the land of Magog. Ezekiel 38 and 8, After many days you will be mustered, says the Lord. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples among the mountains, upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord that, God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. 
You will come up against my people, Israel, says the Lord, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. The Euphrates was the largest river of the region and formed the eastern border of the land that had been given to Abraham. And as well, it separated the Roman Empire from the feared Parthians with their dreaded Calvary. And in both cases, then, Euphrates served as a natural obstacle and hindrance to the armies of the enemy. And in this way, the Euphrates then here becomes symbolic of the natural obstacles to the enemies of God's people, the church. And so what we have here then in the drying up of the great river Euphrates again is God actually removing that which hinders the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. And the result is, of course, the uniting of the kings of the nations. And they're assembling together to wage war on the people of God in an attempt to snuff out any witness in the world to the light of Christ. The result is a sort of unity and universality of opposition to Christ and his church, the whole world, as it were, coming against the church of Jesus Christ. For what is revealed in the vision next is the response of that unholy trinity of evil to the removal of this natural obstacle. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Three unclean, fro- three unclean spirits like frogs. The fact that they are appearing here as frogs seems to underscore the fact that they are unclean as frogs were an unclean animal not to be eaten. And as well, frogs, especially here, should remind us of the second plague that befell Egypt, which was an onslaught of frogs, a a plague of frogs. And so it is here that these frogs, these unclean spirits that proceed forth from the mouths of the, the devil and the beast and the false prophet are as a plague upon humanity, a plague ultimately unleashed by God as the judgment of God. And so we see that there is a plague here after all in this sixth bowl judgment. And in addition, it is revealed to us in verse 14 that these frogs are demonic spirits. Demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to all the kings of the earth to assemble them together for battle, that they might wage war on the church. And so these are deceiving spirits, lying spirits that deceive all the kings of the earth. That is the purpose of the signs which they are performing that they might deceive, that they might persuade the leaders of the world to join them in their evil cause. And so these frogs are a plague indeed, a plague of deception, a plague of deception that falls upon the kings of the earth, leading them astray to wage war on the church. However, notice in verse 14 just what it is that these kings of the earth are being assembled for. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for 
battle on the great day of God the Almighty. To whom does this day of battle belong? To God the Almighty. In other words, these kings and these armies are being assembled in order that they might be defeated. This is judgment. Let me read again from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 and 16, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In fact, it turns out that it isn't going to be much of a battle at all, really. Chapter 17 and 18, which follows, sort of expound for us the downfall of Babylon, that great prostitute, the harlot, which is the Roman Empire in John's day, an empire that, of course, came to an end, a decisive and quick end, and, and therefore Rome of antiquity becomes now a type of, a type of Rome that is ever-present throughout the church age, appearing in various forms, rising and then falling, only to rise again in another form. Rome, which was and is not and yet ever rises again, but will nonetheless in the end be finally and forever brought to an end. And chapters 17 and 18 unpack and expound upon her demise. And then chapter 19 returns again to the battlefield of chapter 16. As we have seen, chapter 16 prepares the way for this battle. The way of of this war is made straight. The natural obstacles to to united and universal war upon the saints is removed, and thus the battlefield is prepared. The lines are drawn. All the kings of the earth have set themselves together against the Lord and against his people. They have come. All of hell and all of earth have gathered together and joined forces with one purpose in mind to utterly destroy the followers of Jesus Christ, and remove from the earth any remnant of gospel witness. And this is clearly an overwhelming force here that has come upon the peace-loving people of God. A people, if you will remember, called to love her enemies and to pray for those who persecute her, to bless those who revile her, to turn the other cheek. And so the outlook here is bleak for the church to say the least. That is, if her gaze is set low upon the earth and she fails to raise her head to the sky. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. All of hell and earth have surrounded the bride of Christ with the united aim to wipe her off the face of the earth. And surely she has no way to defend herself against such an onslaught of evil. But it is precisely then, at that very moment of sure defeat, that heaven is torn open and in the sky overhead there appears a white horse upon which rides her beloved bridegroom, her savior, her captain, her king. 
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Remember, it was from the mouths of the devil and his cohorts that the unclean frogs came forth to deceive the kings in order to assemble the armies of the nations against the followers of Christ. Well, now... From the mouth of the king of kings and lord of lords comes a sharp two-edged sword by which he cuts down his enemies and utterly destroys all those who would destroy his people. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest... The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so here we have these two great armies gathered for battle. On the one side of the battlefield is assembled all the armies of all the nations of the earth and their kings led by the beast himself and the false prophet. And on the other side, the hosts of heaven, led by the King of kings and Lord of lords, astride a white horse. And instead of a great battle now commencing between two corresponding forces, what we have here is an angel calling forth to the birds of the air to come and feast, come to the feast of God, come and feast upon the flesh of the armies of the earth. Again, this really isn't much of a battle. After all. But so it is, brethren, when our beloved bridegroom is aroused by the plea for help that comes from his bride in her time of desperate need. This place of Armageddon, or literally the Mount of Megiddo, most likely points to the ancient battlefield of Megiddo. 
and therefore seems to be symbolic for that place where the people of God have come under such assault as to be seemingly without hope for victory, where she is a sitting duck, so to speak, where, humanly speaking, her defeat is sure and her plight hopeless. Such was the battle between Brock and Sisera in Judges chapter 4, a battle fought, in fact, on the plain of Megiddo. Sisera was the commander of the armies of the Canaanite king Jabin, who had ruled uh, over Israel for some 20 years. And Sisera's army was impressive with some 900 chariots of iron that, that caused the Israelites to fear. The armies of Israel were simply no match for these chariots of iron. However, the prophetess Deborah had revealed that the Lord, the Lord would fight for his people on that day. And indeed, the Lord did show up and go to war for his people on that day. And on that day, the entirety of Sisera's army fell by the edge of the sword. And God's people were delivered from out of the hands of their enemies in this plain of Megiddo, this Armageddon. Armageddon in some ways stands for any and every situation where the affliction we are called to simply seems beyond what we can endure. Where we find ourselves helpless of ourselves, powerless against that which the devil uses to assail us. I can't help but think of those saints of old led to the stake to burn. Oh, how the Lord had to show up at that very moment to see them through. Or have you ever noticed what it was that sustained Stephen in his great time of need, surrounded by devils grinding their teeth at him, his fellow Jews throwing stones at him? Acts chapter 7 and verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Lord showed up for Stephen. The Lord showed up. The heavens were opened and his beloved had come to his rescue, standing beside the throne. Let this be a lesson to us, brethren, that that when we are powerless against the forces of evil that the devil employs to assault us, we must not be found with our gaze fixed low and upon our enemies, but rather it is precisely such times as these when we most need to lift our heads and gaze into heaven that we might get a glimpse of the glory of our great God and our Savior now standing at the throne even our beloved astride a white horse going to battle for us. For it is precisely such times that the Lord has ordained in order that he might show forth his glory and his holiness in delivering us, in delivering you. Luke 21 and 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. And why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Because your redemption is drawing near. 
And so actually, in the end, our Lord's drying up of the Euphrates here isn't so different after all from his drying up of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 or even the River Jordan in Joshua 3. For, for while by doing so, all of hell and earth are allowed to assemble and to come against us, his people, our God's ultimate purpose in it is that his glory and holiness would be seen through the destruction of our enemies and through our final and full deliverance. And so whatever the devil might use to assault you, whether it be a stake at which you are to burn or or a dark dungeon in which you are left to rot or, or the dark cloud of depression, whatever forces the devil would assemble to assault you and try to get you to despair, just remember to lift your head up and to gaze into heaven and wait for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. Look to Christ. Look to Christ for your deliverance. Straighten up and raise your head and look to Christ and expect him to show up, to come leaping over mountains, bounding over hills and speaking to you, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, for the time of singing has come. And that brings us then to our second point. The the necessary preparation of the saints that is being done here in this passage. Where our Lord in the midst of the assembling of these great armies of our enemies has a word of warning and exhortation which he speaks here directly to his people directly to the readers of John's book, directly to you and me, brethren, as we study this book. Our Lord is here exhorting you and me, speaking directly to us. Do you see that? And do you feel that? Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, much of the imagery here of staying awake and of garments and of nakedness harkens back to the letters to the churches in the first part of the book and most specifically to the letters given to the churches in Sardis and Laodicea. Sardis and Laodicea, Revelation 3 and verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. The church in Sardis had a reputation for being 
alive. In other words, they were thought well of by outsiders. They were seemingly a lively church, a happening place, and yet, and yet, according to our Lord, they were dead. In other words, their reputation of being alive was a mere outward facade. They weren't really alive at all, not inwardly. Their works, says our Lord, were not complete, at least not in the eyes of God, who sees all and pierces to the inward. Oh, they were busy, ever busy for the Lord, and yet it would seem their heart was far from him. And that means their heart was elsewhere, right? Far from being clothed with white garments, their garments were stained with their worldliness, even as they had a reputation for being alive. For the one who keeps his garments unstained in this book is the one who does not succumb to the temptation to sell out Christ in order to gain more of this world. The white garments of the faithful are white because they are unstained from the world's idolatry. The question that needs to be asked in the church in Sardis is if one is busy for the Lord and yet his heart is far from the Lord, then where is his heart? What then is his true love? Where is his treasure really kept? Keeping of one's garments, it would seem, is the keeping of one's heart. The keeping of one's heart. And that is exactly what we see when we examine the church in Laodicea as well, to whom our Lord declares in Revelation 3 and verse 15, I know your works. I know your works as well. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove in discipline, says the Lord. So be zealous. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous, urges our Lord, not lukewarm, with your affection set upon other things, earthly things, even worldly things. But be zealous. Be zealous for me, says the Lord. Our hearts, brethren, are to burn for our beloved. Madly in love we are to be with our Jesus, our Savior, our King. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Nakedness in the Bible is most often associated with judgment. Over and over again, the judgment of God, either on his wayward people or on the enemies of his people, is accompanied with the threat that they would be stripped naked and the shame of their nakedness would be exposed. And in fact, in this book, this is exactly what happens to the harlot, that great prostitute where she who made the nations drink of her sexual immorality, her spiritual idolatry, in the end is left desolate and naked, the shame of her immorality and idolatry exposed before the judgment of God. 
as we've already seen, this, this book of Revelation could be referred to as the tale of two women, the great prostitute on the one hand, who in the end then is left desolate and naked, and the bride of Christ on the other, made up of the faithful remnant to whom it has been granted in this book to clothe herself, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. In other words, garments unstained by the world's idolatry and immorality. Again, to keep one's garments in this book is to keep one's heart. To keep one's heart fixed firmly on our beloved Jesus. In other words, as Jesus exhorts the Laodiceans to to be zealous. To be zealous. To be ever zealous for the Lord. That is to love the Lord fervently and completely. Christian zeal is the opposite of the lukewarmness of the Laodiceans. It is what the Puritans referred to as the flame, the flame of sacred zeal, by which all the affections are set on fire by set on fire for God, resulting in all of life being lived to the glory of God. Sacred zeal, they taught, was not so much a particular grace of God, but rather a flame that turns up the heat of all the other graces of God. And therefore, zeal impacts every aspect of the Christian walk and life. Zeal creates a hunger and a thirst for God, a panting after the sweetness of fellowship with Christ. It is a sacred and holy passion for more of Christ for more love to Christ, by any means possible to have more of Jesus. Surely sacred zeal is what the Apostle Paul was ruled and governed by, even consumed by, as he willingly suffered the loss of everything else that he might gain more of Christ. Counting everything else as worthless, vanity, compared to the unsurpassing worth of knowing Christ so longing to be in communion with Christ that he would submit to any suffering, but that through it he might have more Christ, fellowship with Christ by sharing in his sufferings and even becoming like him in his death by whatever means possible to gain more of Christ. That is the object of the zealous Christian. That is the goal. That is the purpose for life to gain more of Christ by whatever means possible. And yet Paul could wish himself a curse for the sake of his brethren in the flesh. Where did that come from? Oh, what zeal for the glory of the Lord that could produce such a hunger for Christ and such a burden for lost souls in a man. Surely this is what it is to be truly alive, brethren. To be truly alive, to have life abundantly as a Christian. Surely this is what it is to be a Christian who is awake. (coughs) Awake and ready for our Lord's return. Eager for our Lord's return. Yearning, ever yearning for Christ. We are being called here, brethren, where we are already slumbering, to wake up, 
to wake up and pursue hard after Christ and to kindle our hearts fire for our Lord and to stay awake, ever to stay awake, to be alive, truly alive as a Christian, to taste of life, so on fire for Christ that we would stand immovable, even in the face of all the hosts of hell together and all the armies of, of the earth gathered to make war upon us. Immovable. How long will we be content slumbering? How long will we be content having our sleep disturbed every once in a while, being awakened to the brief taste of abundance only to slip back into a lazy and drowsy Christianity. But would we not, brethren, (coughs) would we not have less of this world and more of Christ? Wouldn't we rather burn for Christ with a holy passion and sacred zeal continually? Are we willing to pursue it? Are we willing to be deliberate in our seeking it? Brethren, even to deny self where we must. Well, let me close with with some very practical steps that you and I can take to foster this desperately needed sacred Zeal. These are the means of cultivating such a zeal as taught by the Puritans and summarized by Joel Beakey and James LaBelle in their book on the subject. First, brethren, we must recognize that such zeal is ultimately a gift of God and therefore we must seek such a blessed state through the means of prayer. We must be a praying people. If we would but yearn for a true yearning and express through prayer a zeal to be zealous, surely our gracious Father would grant us more of the Holy Spirit by which this fruit of his grace is bestowed upon us. Surely he would bless us in that way. So let us pray for this sacred zeal, brethren. Secondly, we must be in the word of God as much as possible, students of the word, prayerfully seeking, understanding, and to be changed by the Bible, either reading or studying, and where we aren't reading and studying it, meditating on it, chewing on it, or reading books on the word of God, benefiting from the insight of trusted Bible teachers and catching the flame of God's most zealous servants this contagious flame of zeal. The Puritans are good for this. But so are men like Tozer and Ravenhill. The Puritans taught that zeal is a sacred passion governed and regulated by the word of God. And so let's be students of the word, always in the word, saturated with the words of our Lord. And with that, thirdly, we must be regularly, regularly attend, attending and being attentive to the preaching of God's word. The Puritans taught that a major role of the preacher and his sermon are to keep the flame of zeal alive. 
Oh, may the Lord be so gracious to this body in blessing this pulpit in that way. Amen. Fourthly, we must not forsake the gathering, but rather fight for and foster true Christian fellowship. True Christian fellowship. Fellowship about the person of Jesus Christ. Fellowship in the gospel of Christ. True Christian fellowship that involves a partnership in the gospel and in the advancement of the gospel. The illustration the Puritans used was of hot embers in a fireplace. How when close together they burn bright and hot, but if you separate, separate them and they stand alone, they quickly grow cold and die out. So it is with Christian zeal. Zeal for Christ is fueled by fellowship about the person of Christ. True Christian fellowship. Finally, we must be serious and deliberate in our battle against sin, killing sin in our members, waging war against any besetting sin, starving out fleshly desires until such unholy passions breathe their last within us. And ever keeping ourselves from idols, leaving all else behind as we run hard after Our Jesus. Oh, may the Lord give us this determination to desire and to pursue this sacred zeal that we, brethren, would be of those who are awake and drinking deep of the abundance of life in Christ, awake and ready for any and every Armageddon. Amen.